If you're new with us uh, today, uh, we are in the midst of a series we've titled Just Lead. And it's a series that's taking us through the book of 1 Samuel, an Old Testament book that's a really a crucial book in the Old Testament because it deals with a very significant transition in the life of God's people, Israel, where they went from kind of a more nomadic uh, and judges and regional leaders all throughout to a kingship that's established by the end of the book. So a very significant time of transition, but there is lots of challenges, lots of issues, lots of tragedies, lots of triumphs amidst that. And, and so we've looked at this uh, and, and are drawing out some really key principles on how we learn as people to live through transitions, tragedies, and triumphs, all of which we all face in our life. And the good part of 1 Samuel is contrasting different characters and how they navigated each of them. And some of those who honored the Lord through them and what it resulted in, and others who did not and what it resulted in. So whether you're a leader of a whole bunch of people in your organization, or maybe you find yourself in a situation where you wonder if you influence anyone, you're going to see in the book of 1 Samuel that every single type of person has the opportunity to lead through the transitions, tragedies, and triumphs that they face in life. In fact, the book is named after the child of a woman who seemed just like that, like no one knew she even existed, like she had no significance, and how she led and learned to lead through her own situation resulted in an incredibly significant impact in the life of Israel. So if you have a Bible with you today, uh, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6. Yeah, you heard that right. We're covering four chapters today, four, five, six, and seven. If you brought a, a lunch, I suggest you get it out now. If you have a blanket, uh, take a picnic. We're going to be here a while, all right? I'm kidding. I've ordered Taco Palenque already, so I'm going to take a break in the middle of this, a little intermission. I'll just grab a snack and we'll get back after. No, we're going to get through it. Don't worry. But we're going to look at this larger narrative. It's often referred to as the arc narrative. Let me give you a little context for it uh, as we go. Samuel, as we know, has been born. He's a young boy serving in the uh, tabernacle, uh, but he's still young. And this transitional period is going to be uh, some flounderings of Israel while they're waiting for him to come on the scene and lead, and while they're still under the leadership of, of a very poor high priest and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that we've seen in the weeks past. So if you have your Bibles open to, to 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you're new, the page number for this first chapter is in your worship guide, uh, and those hardcover Bibles in the chair in front of you will take you right to it. I'd encourage you to follow along with us in the Bible, or at least find out where these uh, chapters are, get familiar with it, and we'll also put the specific verses up on the screen. Here's how I'm going to do this. I'm not going to read all four chapters. Now you're all going, whew, thank you, Jesus, for that. Even though they're really good, I'm, I've pulled out the main story plot line of it, and I'll fill in details as we go so you kind of can follow the story, but I'm going to pull out the main uh, por portions of it so that we can get the, the three primary points that we want to look at today. Let's pray, and we'll jump in to this great passage. Father, we are so grateful that you are a holy and unique God. But if we're honest, God, that also scares us. In fact, we're going to see today the typical ways that we respond to the fact that you are holy, that you are perfect, that you are unique, that you are set apart, that there is no one like you 
in all of creation. And Lord, my prayer is, is that as we open your word today and, and just see the goodness of how you have revealed yourself to us, that, Lord, we would learn from those who have lived before us, that we would understand that you have given us these truths so that we might learn from the past mistakes and past successes, and we might better see how we, as your people today, are to respond to the revelation you have given us about your goodness and your holiness. So Lord, open our hearts. I pray your spirit will illuminate our minds and cause us to respond in faith and trust and obedience to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Three things I want you to see from this section. All of them are responses to God's holiness. My title for this is that leadership requires submission. That's kind of an oxymoronic because we don't often think of it that way. Oftentimes we all think, man, I can't wait to be in the leadership spot because then I get to call all the shots. Well, if that's what goes through your mind, uh, you're going to be a horrible leader. Because today we're going to see that true leadership requires maybe the greatest amount of submission Period. We often don't like to submit to leaders, but a good leader realizes that they have to submit to something or someone even greater than them. And today we're going to see examples of leaders that didn't do that and some leaders that did do that. And so three things I want you to see in this section is, is this. Two common responses to God's holiness. What are two common responses to, that people have when they understand God's holiness, his uniqueness, and his beauty in that sense? How do we often respond to that? We're gonna see two of the most common responses in this section is the narrative of the ark, which is the, the symbol of God back at that time is moved around. And then we're gonna see a correct response to God's holiness. So two common responses and the correct response. Now, like I said, this is a, a transitional section in the book of Samuel. And to, to figure out where things are at, I'm gonna start in verse, chapter, in verse one of chapter four, which is kind of a misplaced verse. So if we look at the first part of chapter four, it says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, unfortunately, when the... the writers or the, the people that have printed the Bible since it was originally written did some of that, they randomly placed the chapters and the verses, not randomly, but they made choices as to where to put them. The verses and the chapters in the Bible are not an inspired part of the Bible. The original Bible did not have chapters and verses in it. It's something that's been added later on so that we could better find passages within the Bible. So they don't always make the right choices as to where to divide it. And that first sentence, really should be part of chapter three. If you read the last paragraph of chapter three, you see that it's a common thing uh, that Hebrew writers would do, is they're making a summary statement of a given section that's a big overview of kind of what's gonna happen in this section. And then chapter four, starting at now Israel, is kind of the details of that all playing itself out. Does that make sense? So chapter four, verse one, should really be part of the last section. Now we're going to jump into verse, uh, the second half of that, now Israel, to see what's happening. Because Eli at this point is still a young boy, 
So he's not ready to quite be the the priest and prophet and judge for Israel. He's still hanging out at the tabernacle and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are the ones leading. And we're gonna see by the end of this section that we're reading, which is about a 20 year period, Samuel is finally gonna come out and show up at the very end. Okay, so we're looking at about a 20 year period through this whole section. So let's read, it says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the God, a covenant of God. Now let me just explain this a little bit. So the ark, if you read the Old Testament, they would have known this is a, was a, a box in a sense that was created, it had these two beautiful golden cherubim on top where their wings touched, and it was designed to be a symbol of the presence of God. It was not the presence of God, it was a symbol of the presence, and that, that the cherubim formed what was called the mercy seat. Okay, and, and these angels covered basically the truth that was on below and, and inside the ark was the Ten Commandments and some other things, but that was kind of the gist of it and it was designed to be uh, treated in a very specific way and it was kept in the tabernacle and it was a place where Moses or the leaders would come to meet with God, not because God was in the ark, but because the ark symbolized some things they were to know about their God. Okay, so here we see that they are in this battle, and, and look at what they even said. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. So the story goes on, and we see in verse 10 it continues. It says, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. So even after they bring the ark to the battle lines, they still are getting slaughtered. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, if you remember, that was predicted in the previous section. Uh, that was going to happen, and here it's taking place. Now, fast forward a little bit. A messenger leaves the battlefield and heads back to uh, Shiloh to report. And in verse 17, we see what he says. He says, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. He's reporting this to Eli, the high priest. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. So here's the first scene we see in the first common response to the holiness of God. And here's my point for you is I cannot use the holiness of God as a good luck charm in my life. I cannot use the holiness of God as a good luck charm in my life. 
Now, how do we come up with, with this? You see it in, in what we read here. In fact, there's always keys within narratives that the authors are trying to get you to see, and one of them is when they ask questions or throw some dialogue in here. And the first place we see that dialogue is when we see the elders responding to what happened in their loss. It says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And what's interesting is if they just answered that question, they would have been good. You see, the elders were not just the old people in the society. The elders were considered the spiritual leaders of the community as well. They were the ones that should have known God's truth and should have been able to bring that truth to the situations that people faced. And so when they asked that question, they should have had a very clear answer. Why did we get beat? Instead, what they do is they say, hey, before they even answer it, let's go get the ark. I got it. Let's go get the ark. Let's bring it to the battle lines, and then God will fight for us. Because, you know, God's trapped inside that box, and he's probably going, oh my goodness, we left God in Shiloh. He's not even there at the battlefield. How can he help us out if he's stuck in that box in Shiloh? And so they bring him with. Instead, they should have answered that question of why did the Lord defeat us here? Because the Bible very clearly tells us. In fact, they would have had access to this part of Scripture because it was already written. In, in Deuteronomy 28, before Moses led the second generation into the promised land. So this was a few hundred years before these events that we're seeing have taken place. This is all available to them. These were the words that God shared with the people during that time. He said, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Now it goes on. I'm picking out just the specific verses of these blessings that God had given to him as the curses. Then he contrasts. He says, but if you, meaning the Israelite people, will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And here's one of the curses. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. See, it should have been a very simple answer for the elders when they asked that question. Why were we defeated today? And the answer would have been, well, according to God's word, when we as his people are not obeying his commands, then we will become subject to our enemies rather than us defeating our enemies. And if you know anything about this time period, in fact, if you've been listening to any of these messages, you realize this is not a shining period in the history of Israel. We saw how the high priests were treating the people. We even know the context of the book of 1 Samuel is really just shortly after or transitioning from the book of Judges, which in the book of Judges is one of the worst periods of Israel's time. In fact, one of the common verses in the book of Judges is this one. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's exactly what the elders were doing. In fact, they do what we all do when we need God's presence 
but we don't want to conform to God's will. We rely on superstition. Right? Well, I'm not going to follow God. I want to know what he actually says. So let me see. What can I find around here? Hey, there's an ark. Let's bring the ark. Let's throw the ark out there. And now God will certainly win my battles for me. Now, we might chuckle and say, come on, Chad. We don't do silly things like that. No, we may not use an ark. But we still use all kinds of religious things to face situations instead of conforming to God's will. Right, we throw a little prayer and instead of studying for my exam. We're out doing whatever we want. We get up the next morning, Lord, man, just help, me, help me pass this exam, Lord. I know you want me to be successful, amen. Rather than submitting to his will to study and, and grow and learn and do what your leaders tell you to do. Now, some of you adults are laughing and thinking of your kids, but you do the exact same thing. You pray, God, just, if you just give me this promotion, if I could just get this raise, if I could just get that job, God, God, suddenly you want God right there with you. Even though you've been neglectful in your work in a lot of ways, maybe you've squandered your resources, you haven't been obedient with them, but you think, if I can just get this raise in this position, God, let me, let me bring you to this battle. You win this battle for me so I can get this new role. Not even thinking that maybe the extra hours that you have to work in that role or the extra money, you're going to continue to spend on things that aren't really helpful for you. It's just going to make you busier and busier as a person or as a family. And what God's really wanting you to do is say, look at my word. The word that says, Work heartily is unto the Lord, not unto man. Whatever position he has you in, whatever place he has you, obey his word now, and you can trust he's going to put you and place you wherever he needs you to be. We all pray before games, right? Right now, God, if you could just get this victory for me, God, if I could just score this many points, if I could get that winning touchdown, God, man, I'd look awesome at the prom tonight. We, that's, that's our good luck charm version of God. Instead of conforming to God's will and saying, you know what, everyone's probably praying for the victory. We don't know who's going to win, God. That's in your hands. But Lord, would you help me be a faithful, honest, diligent team player? In whatever situation I face, can I reflect your goodness in whatever comes about in this situation? You see, whether it was several thousand years ago or right here today in 2017. We all have a tendency to dismiss the holiness of God and want to use him as our good luck charm. We want his presence to fight our battles, but we don't want his presence to transform and conform us to his will. And the Israelites were doing the same thing. Second thing we're going to see here in the next few chapters is an, another response that we have to God's holiness. In fact, we're going to see a couple, some by the Philistines and some by the Israelites, two different ways in which we respond to God's holiness through these two chapters. So let me pull out some verses and, and read through them. We're going to be in chapter 5 now. 5 and 6 reveal this next common response. So now in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod was one of the cities in Philistine. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. 
So let me explain this now. The, the Philistines, their primary god, they had multiple gods, as, as most of these nations did, but their primary deity was Dagon. And so they'd often have their little temples, and what was common in that day and age, as we've talked about this a little bit, is every nation had its own gods. So every nation was kind of represented by a god or, or a handful of gods, and so if your nation defeated the other nation, then that was a sign that, hey, our god's stronger than their god. But the other thing that was true of people back at that time is they thought not only were gods associated with nations, but gods ruled over certain parts of the land. They were attached and associated with the land. So if, say, my nation conquered your nation, I would, it would show that my god's stronger than your god, but what I wouldn't want to do is just go in and wipe your god out because your god still reigns and has authority in that particular area, and that would be bad luck for you. So what you do is you just incorporate that God into your worship because if you're ever in that territory, you might want to appeal to that particular God for favor in that particular area. Are you with me? So that was how they thought. So they have the ark now, and they just take the ark, which is the symbol of Israel's God, and they bring it into their own little temple and set it next to their God, which is Dagon, and that's what we see going on here, okay? It says, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold... Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place, which this is just hilarious, right? You guys, think about this. Oh, let me pick up my God. Let me, hold on, it's okay, Dagon, I got you. It's okay, it's okay, let me put you back. Think about, this is the silliness of what we all do as humans, is we create these things to worship and then we have to support them so that they're worthy of being worshipped. We can think this is primitive, but we do the exact same thing, right? We worship a certain lifestyle, and once we work our way to get to it, now we gotta keep it going in order to support it so that it's worthy to be worshipped. And we don't stop to think, is that really worthy of our worship? So they, they, they put Dagon back up, but it says, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now skip down to verse 6. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. That's the city where the ark was in Philistine. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So let me summarize the rest of the, that chapter. Basically what they did is they sent him off. They sent him off to Ekron, another city in Philistine, and they experienced the exact same thing. So they sent him off to Gath, another city in, in Philistine, and they experienced the exact same thing. So now they're at a point where we're going, we, we gotta get rid of this God. Now think about it, rather than saying, wow, this God seems to be more powerful than ours. Maybe we need to worship a new God. Instead, they say, we gotta get rid of this God so that we can cling to the God we worship. And so verse six, we see just, or chapter six, we see that happening. Follow with me, we're gonna skip forward a little bit to verse 11 in chapter six. It says, and they put the ark of the Lord on a cart. This is the Philistines. So they took the ark. They said, we gotta get rid of this thing. They put it on a cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. So they created these 
little offerings of golden tumors and golden mice. You know, this is craziness, but that's what they did. They were going to offer it back to God because they'd experienced tumors and mice. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. That's a city in Israel or in the land of Israel. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So this is the Israelites, and they see this, the ark coming back. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background before we look at the rest of this little section. So they send the cart, the Philistines put the ark on this cart, they hook it up to some cows, and basically they say, if these cows take it back to Israel the right way, then we know that it's really the Lord whose hand is against us. And sure enough, the cows go right back, they go to Beth uh, Shemesh, what is it called? Beth, Beth, I hear you calling, so I don't know, whatever it is. <laughs> I'm, I dated myself a little bit there, didn't I? So they send it back to this city, and, and this is a city of the Levites. There was one of the towns set apart for the Levites, and the Levites are one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but in particular, they're the tribe that was set apart for the priestly duties of Israel. They're like the pastors of Israel. So these should have been the most well-informed of God's people on how to handle the things of God. Are you with me? Okay, so that's where the ark has gone to now. They do this little sacrifice, but then we see in verse 19, it says, and he struck, meaning God, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, one of the things that God said is in his word in, in Leviticus and in Exodus and as they're creating the, the whole ark, is he says, you don't touch this. You don't grab it with your hands. They use poles. It was set up and it was to symbolize the holiness of God. You were never to open it up or mess around with it or anything like that. And that's exactly what these guys did. Like little kids, they said, hey, let's look at it. The ark is here now. Let's take it, check it out. And they treat it very flippantly. And 70 of them died because of that. Now, these weren't just any old people doing it. These were the Levites, those who should have known God's truth in his will for this particular religious symbol. But they didn't, and he struck them dead. So what happens is that he struck uh, 70 of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Again, another question. How should they have answered it? They should have answered, well, no one can stand before him, but we can certainly relate to him properly because he's told us how to do that. But they don't answer that. They don't go to his word and answer it. They simply say, uh, we gotta get rid of this thing. Right? And they say, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Meaning, where can we send this thing to get it out of our presence so we, no more of us don't die? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So they want to get that thing out of there because 
and what happened to them. Here's my second point in relation to this principle. When I dismiss the holiness of God, I experience his judgment. When I dismiss the holiness of God, I experience his judgment. I can try to use it like a good luck charm or I can try to dismiss it. And you're gonna see that in two different ways in this section. You see, the Philistines were the first to dismiss the holiness of God, and they did what people would typically do, and what we even often do, is we just say, oh, here's another God. Let's just include him in with our gods. Let's just blend him in with, with what we're already worshiping. Maybe he'll be good luck for us here. Maybe, you know, we'll serve this God when we need this. We'll serve this God when we need this. And, and that totally dismisses the holiness of God. God, the God of the Bible, the true God, will not be a God among many gods. He has revealed himself as the true God. And that speaks into our modern day culture because we live in a time that's very much like this where we welcome all different gods and just worship whatever you believe is best. And that may be true of other gods so-called gods, that is not true of the God of the Bible. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot say you worship the God of this Bible and be inclusive of all the other gods in the world as well. God is showing us that right here. In fact, he revealed himself to the Philistines by saying, you want to put me in with your God in your temple? And what happened? Their dog, God, dropped twice and once was shattered amongst them revealing to the Philistines what should have been a no-brainer, maybe we need to replace our God with the true God. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to cling to their God, so they dismissed God's holiness and passed them back to the Philistines, and, or excuse me, to the Israelites. Now, the Israelites do the other thing that we often do is we don't want to conform to God so we just get them out of our lives. We push them away to avoid our need for change. They, they bring God in, and, and then rather than addressing how should we approach this God, how are we to handle even the ark here, they just dive right in and, and dismiss his holiness by being very flippant about how they approach God, even though God had revealed to them how to do so. And instead of stopping and saying, hmm, maybe I need to change my approach to God. Maybe I don't know the best way to approach him. They don't do that. They do the same thing the Philistines said. Let's, get up, let's move him out. Let's dismiss him out of this area. I don't want to change how I approach this God. I kind of want to do things my way. So instead of changing, I'm going to move God out. As if you can just move him out of your life and there be no consequences to it. See, we do a lot of these exact same things even now. We might welcome God in as one thing that's important in our life, and I'll keep God here when I need him. I need him on Sundays. Every so often, he's, he's good to throw out a verse, or maybe I can use you, but really I'm worshiping fame. I'm worshiping money. I'm worshiping my family. These are the things, these are all important things to me, and, and God's just a good God to kind of have around when I need a little bit of God. And God says, I'll have no, none of that. Or there's other times where we just say, you know what, I don't want to bring God into this area of my life because I don't want to conform this area of my life 
to how he wants me to operate. So yeah, God, I'll, I'll keep you on Sundays. You're kind of nice to have, you know, when I'm at a funeral or, or certain times in my family, but when it comes to my relationships, God, I, I don't want you interfering with how I want to date or how I want to act in my marriage. Or finances, you know, God, I, I don't want to, I don't want you telling me how to use my money, but I'll throw a little bit in the offering as good luck so that I can get a better job or have a promotion or maybe you'll bless me if I bring you in with a little good luck. Rather than conforming my stuff to your will and experiencing your protection, I want to use you as my good luck charm or I just want to dismiss you out of areas that I don't want to change. See, these are the common ways in which we all respond to the holiness of God. And neither of them is going to work out well for us. Just as it didn't for Israel. It left them vulnerable to their enemies. Enter Samuel. Now we're going to see Samuel come into the picture. And we're going to see the one correct way to respond to the holiness of God in chapter 7. So here's the first time we see Samuel, and we're going to see, if you read the first part of verse 7, which I'm skipping, you'll see that the period, time period is about 20 years from the end of chapter 6 to, the, to what I'm reading right here. So this is 20 years later. Samuel's grown up now. He's obviously old enough to start interacting, and he steps in after the Israelites have had the ark for about 20 years, and they haven't really known what to do with it. And Samuel says this in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, notice this here, this is going coinciding. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. So this is interesting. God had revealed that when I'm going to judge you, my people, I'm going to use your enemies to do so. So you should always connect the attacking of the enemies and overcoming of God's people in the Old Testament with God's judgment or discipline on his people. And these are going on simultaneously. Samuel's offering up this lamb, and we'll talk about that, as the Philistines are coming to bring judgment upon Israel. Okay? And it says, and the Lord 
thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Here's my last point. Only when I submit to God will I experience his protection. Only when I submit to God will I experience his protection. Do you see the difference in this section between the two different leaders of that time? Hophni and Phinehas, they tried to control God and just throw him at their circumstances. Yeah, let's bring the ark out and we'll bring him here. That way we can get what we want without really submitting to God in our lives. See, poor leaders try to manipulate God to get what they want and they bring God to their circumstances thinking that God should fix their circumstances. Where a godly, true leader like Samuel takes God's people and leads them to the will of God so that they conform to the will of God and allows God to fight the battle. You see, when we are conformed to God's will, when we are under his authority, that's when he protects us. When we choose to step outside of it, that's when we leave ourselves vulnerable. That's exactly what you see going on here. Until we submit to God and his will, we will not experience his protection in our lives. Now, you might ask the question, well, well, Chad, why would I submit to God's holiness? Why should I allow him to dictate things in my life? That's a great question to ask. In fact, we see a very beautiful image of that right here in this passage. Two reasons for it, and we're going to see them right here. Look back at me at, at verses 8 through 10. It says, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. It seems kind of strange, but let me tell you what Samuel's doing here. Samuel's dealing with the real issue. Why are the enemies overcoming Israel? Because they had sinned against the Lord. They weren't obeying him. And so rather than running and trying to push away the enemies that they had allowed in because of their sin, Samuel deals with the greater issue, the sin of Israel. And he grabs an unblemished lamb, which was written in God's word, Leviticus chapter one, you go there yourself, an offering of atonement, offering for the sin of the people could come from the herd, from the flock. And he grabs the lamb and he offers it as a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. Two things that we see in that passage as to why we should submit to God's holiness. One is a negative motivation, and one of them is a positive motivation. The negative motivation is that God will 
judge sin. His holiness demands it. He will not turn a blind eye to the sin in our lives. Even if that means bringing outside forces to discipline and judge you and I because of our ongoing sinfulness. That's how serious God takes sin. In fact, the whole offering of that lamb was to constantly be an image and a reminder to the people. If you ever sat through one of those ceremonies and just read about them, it's a little bit of a gruesome picture. The lamb was to be slaughtered, an unblemished lamb at the altar, and part of the blood of that lamb was to be sprinkled and splattered against the altar to reveal that its life was being taken from it. And then the whole lamb would be burnt Every part of it offered up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And if you watch that ceremony, there is one thing for sure you would walk away with. God does not treat sin lightly. Someone must pay for sin. And that would grip their hearts with fear that this God takes sin very seriously. That's a negative motivation, meaning if for no other reason, you gotta realize what God did to that lamb was a foreshadow of what he's going to do to every single person who does not deal with the sin in their life. Now on a practical matter, let me just say this. I don't think the fate of those who reject God will be as bad as that lamb's was. I think it'll be worse. That's just symbolic of how serious God judges sin. That's the negative motivation, but that's not enough. You see, the positive motivation is the one that changes us. Not only does God judge sin seriously, but God also, in this act, reveals something else about his character, that he provides a substitute for your judgment and for mine. You see, the other thing that you should see was you watch that lamb going through that torture and through that judgment that was put upon it is not just how serious God takes sin, but the fact that you're not the one there that that judgment is being taken out on. That God, in his word and in his will, provides a substitute to take your sin and mine, your judgment and mine, upon itself so that you and I can be saved. And I don't think it's any coincidence that at the very time that this lamb is being judged, God's instrument of judgment to his people, the Philistines, are coming against Israel as well. And at that very moment, when this lamb is being judged, God goes and thunders against not just the Philistines, but I think even this lamb, and he's pouring out his judgment on both of them. And in the midst of that, because his people relied on the lamb, because Samuel called out to the Lord and said, God, judge this lamb instead of us, that his judgment pushed back the Philistines that rejected him, but it covered and passed over his own people because the blood of that lamb prevented them from experiencing the holy judgment that they deserved. You see, that lamb points to a greater lamb, to the true lamb, 
who died for you and for me, who took the holy justice and judgment of God upon himself so that anyone who calls upon him, anyone who hides in him will never have to experience the holy wrath of God's justice on sin. But to all who reject that lamb, that cross is simply a picture of what awaits everyone who does not deal with their sin. So that's why, but how do I do this? How do I submit to God's holiness? Samuel says that as simply and as clearly as possible in verse three, read this with me and we'll close with these simple applications. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. And these three sections I've highlighted are the three commands in this passage. He says, put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So I want to just close with these simple applications today. How, How do I submit to God's holiness? If you've never done this, or maybe you have, but maybe you've just kind of wandered like we all do, like the Israelites did. And now God has just become a God amongst many things. And the first step, he says, is put away the other gods in your life. You say, well, Ch- Ch- Chad, I, I, mean, I don't have any idols or I'm not worshiping any other things. You know, you know the idols that they worshiped here, the Baal was a fertility god. It was the primary God of the region. And the fertility God for them was a God who would bring rain for their crops so they could be prosperous. He would make their animals multiply so they could be prosperous. And he would also bring fertility to their family so they could have more children. As we've talked about, children and family was a huge issue for them in that time. You know, we may not have little gods that represent those things, but you don't need an idol to worship money. You don't need an an idol to worship your family, to worship fortune and possessions and stuff. Maybe the fact that it's so hard for you to get here on Sundays more than once a month, more than twice a month, maybe because you're so busy you can't engage in a small group and really grow. Maybe it's because fortune and family have got you so busy trying to prop them up as your gods that you aren't serving the true God. And no matter how much you prop up your fortune, no matter how much you prop up your family, you're going to find that the enemy is always going to pick away and pull away and take those things away from you. And you're going to have to work harder and harder and harder to keep them up because they're not worthy gods. And the more you try to prop them up, the more vulnerable you will become to the enemy. You see, if you're too busy chasing your fortune, if you're too busy 
keeping your family afloat and all the different things we want our kids to do. I want my kids involved here. If they're not involved in this activity, if they aren't part of this, if they don't do these things, if they aren't part of all these things and that just streams over every part of the week, I don't have time to be in a small group. I don't have time to go and worship the Lord because my family, if my kids don't have this, they're never gonna be able to compete with the rest of the kids of this world. Maybe that's not what they need to do. Maybe they need someone who will point them to the living God. Maybe the most important thing your kids can learn is to submit to the uniqueness and holiness of God for the protection that they truly need in life. We need to put away these foreign gods and come back to worshiping the true God. We need to direct our heart to him. And when I say that, I I mean this. We can sometimes do all these things, all right, I'm going to recommit to Sundays, I'm going to recommit to a small group, but we're doing it out of duty. We really want to be elsewhere because we put them away, but we haven't directed our heart. This is so important. I believe directing your heart is looking at the beauty of God in the person of Jesus Christ and seeing how he worshiped the true God and holiness for us so that we might be forgiven. You see, Jesus, he set aside all of his fortune. He became poor so that you and I could have a fortune that lasts far beyond this world. He was willing to do that for you and for me. When we were deserving of being judged because we clung to the things of this world, he set them aside when they were his so that he could take your punishment and mine. Jesus went without a family. In fact, he was willing to be rejected by his whole family and hang all alone so that he could welcome you and me into a family that we'll have forever. And when that truth grips our heart, when we direct our hearts to him and what he has done for us, suddenly the things that we so normally and casually want to worship in this world lose their grip. And we submit to the only God who's worthy of our worship. So as we close with this final song, I'm just going to ask that you have a moment with God yourself. And you just tell him, God, God, these are some gods that I need to put away. Just confess to him, what are those things that have distracted you from worshiping him only? And direct your heart to his son, the true lamb, who took your punishment so that he could welcome you into his family.